want to invite you all to turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. This is the final, series, final sermon in our series, Studying the Book of Ephesians. And so we'll talk about what we've been studying and some of the major themes that we've talked about. Uh, but before we do that, uh, let's listen now to God's word as we continue in our moment of offering and in hearing the scriptures. This is Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. I'm reading from the, the NRSV translation. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belts of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times, in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. Let's pray together one more time. Merciful God, this is your word for your people today. It's a word that you spoke centuries ago through the Apostle Paul, and now we know that you're speaking it to us in these moments. So may the words of my mouth and the things that we think about in each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to begin with a question this morning, and I'm going to be a little transparent. My uh, tablet just died, but I have a backup. Don't worry. Um, I can't trust technology. Uh, Talk to your neighbor And start out by saying, with the word strength, if you think of what makes someone strong in your field of work, in what you're studying, in how you grew up, how do you define strength? What makes someone a strong person? That's how we're going to start today. I'm going to run and get my notes. Ready, set, go. I'm not kidding. Go. All right. So what did you discover? What does it mean to be strong or to have strength in your profession? You can shout it out. You can just toss up an idea. What does it mean to be strong? Persevere. Persevere. Okay. What else? Integrity. Integrity. That's good. That's important. Flexibility. Flexibility. Okay. That's a good sign of strength. What else? Trust. Trust. Yes, that is key. Strength is a really interesting concept because it kind of varies depending on your industry, right? It depends on whether you work in a highly specialized technical field. Strength means you know the program, you know the code inside and out, right? If you're a teacher, your strength does come from perseverance, oh man. And it comes from integrity, and it comes from being able to show up day in and day out and care for your students. Uh, I was reading a book a while back. Um, Some of you uh, are familiar with ministry, so you'll enjoy this. This was a book written pre-recession, 
right? So before the recession, there was kind of an era in ministry and nonprofit work, and now there's a post-recession era in ministry and nonprofit work. And this was a book about conflict in the church, and the main character is a pastor. And the pastor said the three marks of being a strong pastor, successful pastor, considered successful, were these three things. A big church with growing attendance, lots of ministries and programs running for every age and stage, and the cherry on top, a big, beautiful building. Those were the marks of success for pastors 15 years ago. Yeah, the irony there is just remarkable. The final section of Ephesians starts with a word about strength. It goes like this, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. I don't hear anything in there about technical skills or buildings or budgets. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his power. It's different than an athlete training and training and training and getting an Olympic medal or receiving the accolades of a cheering crowd. It's a kind of strength, actually, that Paul's been talking about throughout the letter of Ephesians. It's a strength that doesn't reside within us. It is an external power source with which each person can rely upon, and that can be found only in Jesus Christ and expressed through his community, the church. Today we're going to look at how being strong in the Lord actually plays out in real life. Whenever we read something like, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his power, that's great, that's inspiring, but what what does it mean if we try to put boots on that? What does it mean if we try to walk and talk in that way? So uh, I'm going to try to walk us through three different ideas around this. Uh, I was on vacation this week, so my title has changed from what's in your bulletin, and I now have an outline, so you're welcome. Uh, I don't have a title, so you can just strike the one out that's on there. The first uh, uh, section that we'll talk about today is to define reality. So that's part one. Part two is the key to the battle. The key to the battle. And part three is pray. Define reality, the key to the battle, and pray. So let's talk about defining reality. Earlier in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul has been talking about the church. He's been talking about what the church is, what's it supposed to do. What's it supposed to do. Verse, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians is kind of like, here's what the church is, here's what the community of God is supposed to look like. And then the rest of it, ver- chapters 4, 5, and 6, are all about how does this look in real life. Back in chapter 4, we talked about how there's a mission and a vision for the church. If you missed that sermon, that's okay, it's on the podcast. But the mission according to the Apostle Paul in chapter 4, is to equip the saints, that's us, you saintly people, for the work of ministry, equip the saints for the work of ministry, and the vision, the ideal future within that mission, is to help everyone grow in maturity, grow in their faith in Christ. So in these two ideas, Paul has given the church some marching orders. Here's your project. Here's what I want you to be working toward. And what he's done is actually achieve the goal of the first task of leadership. How many of you have read Max Dupree, Leadership is an Art, Leadership Jazz? He's a leadership scholar. He worked for the Herman Miller Corporation for many, many years. And his definition of leadership is so helpful. He says the first task of a leader is to define reality. You have to define reality. So whatever field you're in, whatever work that you do, you are defining reality for the people you serve. Here's our budget, here's our time constraints, here's the limits that we're facing. If you are a parent, you define reality so much every day, it is exhausting. But it's the thing. It's what you are supposed to do for the sake of your children, define reality for them. Paul is defining reality for us in today's passage after these words about strength, and he's doing it in a way that may make us squirm a little bit, but to squirm in church is a good thing. Listen to verses 11 and 12. This is Paul defining reality for the Ephesian church and for us today. Put on the whole armor of God 
so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul's defined the church's mission and its vision. And now he's putting some kind of scary words around what may be interfering with that mission and with that vision. The challenges that that mission and vision are going to face, he kind of sums up in calling them the wiles of the devil. Now, here's the reality. Verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 6 tell us very clearly that there's an enemy, that he has been there since the beginning. We know this from Genesis chapter 2. The serpent comes along beside Adam and Eve, and his job is to deceive and to distract, to pull people away from the relationship we're meant to have with God. Ezekiel 28 tells us that this deceiver, this enemy, was a fallen angel, someone made for glory, but who broke from God to become someone totally focused on deception and destruction. According to Jesus, his job description is to lie and steal and kill and destroy. He's the source of all shame, all division, all violence and alienation. And if you swim upstream on anything destructive and you follow it to its headwaters, you will find the enemy there. Now, I didn't grow up in a church where we talked a lot about the enemy. Like, I didn't really think about this a whole lot. We touched on this a little bit in seminary. But this is something that I've had to kind of come to grips with in my own life, actually just through experience. And before we veer off into trashy paranormal detective movies and TV shows, let me speak personally to this. I believe this is real. I believe that there is a real battle between good and evil and what the Bible says about the enemy and about these spiritual forces that it's true. Not just because it lines up with my experience of reality, but in part because it does. There have been moments in my life, and I know many of you can relate to this, when I'm pretty sure something evil or even possibly demonic was just around. When I was in seminary, I worked in a hospital, and I don't believe hospitals are demonic places, believe me. I think hospitals are wonderful places. But I was convinced at various times in my ministry at the hospital, man, there's something not right in this room. This patient is under something more than just a medical condition. There's something else going on here. You could feel kind of this heaviness at times, especially at night. And I asked some of the people I worked with, Christian and non-Christian, hey, have you experienced this too? Have you experienced some of this darkness, especially at nighttime in the hospital? And they all said, oh yes, absolutely. I had this sense of unease affirmed for me there. It's happened for me when I've traveled abroad. I'll share in a little bit. It happened to me recently. The whole point I'm trying to make is that evil is there. And as we learn when we read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, the, evil's greatest, the enemy's greatest joy is when he convinces us that he's not there. So we can live in such a way where we put too much emphasis on the presence of evil and too much emphasis on the presence of spiritual conflict and battles. That happens. And we can deny it. And I think what Paul is calling us to do is kind of stand in the middle and go like, no, this is real. The witness of Scripture says this is real. And there's a way to deal with it. There's a way to step into the spiritual roadblocks that the enemy wants to throw up in front of us. All of this matters Because Paul is doing what we talked about at the beginning. He's defining reality. Think about it. If you get sent off on a new venture for your company, if you're tackling a new project in your schooling, if your kids are facing something new, and you find out about a requirement later on, or you find out about a challenge that you didn't know that was there, or there's actually no budget for that or this or that, you kind of feel gypped, right? You're kind of going like, how could I possibly succeed in this environment? 
In a similar way, Paul is looking at the church. He's finishing up this letter. He's kind of wrapping it all up. He's sending them out, sending them forth. And the last thing he wants to do, because he's a good leader, the last thing he wants to do is set people up for failure. Good leaders do not set people up for failure. Good leaders define reality for the people that they serve so that they can be set up for success. Paul wants the saints to be able to do ministry well. And to do that, he has to define reality for them. So he's defining the reality of a spiritual battle. And I want to clarify that by saying this can happen to any of us in many, many different ways. If you're going along this week, you're showing up to work, you're doing your thing, and all of a sudden your daydreams just get dark, like real dark. Stuff you don't normally think about, temptations that you wrestle with. If things start to kind of bubble up for you and you're distracted and you're uneasy and you just kind of can't sit still, you may be experiencing some form of a spiritual attack. And I say that because that happened to me just the other week. I was getting ready to go on vacation with my family and all of a sudden it was just like, whoa, where did all this come from? My daydreams were just terrible and dark. I was distracted. And of course, there's stress, there's other factors, there's all kinds of things that go on there. But looking back on it, I think it was a form of attack. Thank God I don't feel personally under attack right now. And the best response that any of us can have when we're facing anything like that is to pray. Paul is going to come back to that over and over again in this letter, but the way that we combat and push back against any kind of spiritual battle is to approach it with the greatest of spiritual resources, and that is praying in the name of Jesus Christ for the freedom that only Christ can bring. So, I don't currently feel under attack, thank God, but it's only a matter of time. So pray for me. Pray for the leaders of this church. Pray for our teams. Pray for our staff. Pray for the people that you look up to who are leading you spiritually that they won't be under attack. And that when they do, that prayer would be the resource that they employ to combat it. If you are facing a season where you feel like you've been under attack, come talk to Josh. Come talk to our prayer team coordinator so that you can be prayed for, so that someone knows what's going on and they can pray for you throughout the week. If that's not your situation, let me make a suggestion. The next time you drive by a place that you know is filled with darkness and is a place of oppression, start praying for that place. I'm talking about when I drive around Lake City Way and I drive by at least a couple of strip clubs. I need to be praying for those strip clubs, for the people that go there and work there and the people that sort of their lives revolve around that place. Pray for that place to come to an end. Pray for people who are caught up in sex trafficking, in slavery, in crushing debt. Pray for hospitals, even though hospitals are great places. Pray for cops and firefighters and first responders. I'm increasingly convinced of this. Our contract with the people who are our first responders is that we will send them forth in our community to encounter evil on the front lines. And we need them, but they need our prayers. Our firefighters and cops and first responders, they need our prayers because the work that they go do, oh my gosh. Pray for social workers. Pray for missionaries around the world who are stepping into places of darkness in the developing world and going, there feels like there's some resistance here. And pray for them to have the strength to push through that. Pray for Jesus' promise from the chapter right before this, Ephesians 5. Pray for this promise to come true. Everything that is exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Friends, your chief weapon in the battle against darkness is prayer. And you can be encouraged that that is a real thing that really is effectual in this battle. And Paul believes it, and I believe it too. So that's the first part. He's defining reality. He's naming the reality of spiritual battles. There are all kinds of stories we could tell about this, but that's kind of where we're going to leave it for now. Now let's move on to what I think is the key passage in this whole section. 
Paul's defined reality for the church. Now he's going to use this amazing poetic language that is just so cool. The full armor of God. So the breastplate of truth and the belt of righteousness and all these other things. I'm sure I didn't get that right. I'm not going to reread that whole section because I want to emphasize the summary statement that he gives at the beginning. The whole armor of God. This comes up in verse 11 and in verse 13. That word whole is teleos in the Greek. Teleos. Teleos is one of my favorite Greek words because it means complete. It means you're not lacking in anything. It means you've been made whole, not by your own strength, but by the strength of another, brought into your life, into your reality through Jesus Christ. Teleos means maturity. It's in that vision statement. Remember, the vision of the church is to help everyone reach maturity. Teleos, reach the place where they are made whole and complete in Jesus Christ. That's what the armor of God is for. It is whole and it brings wholeness. So with all the wonderful things that kind of are part of the armor of God, of course, because I love comic books, I got the image of Iron Man's armor, right? And there's a power source for Iron Man's armor. Remember this? It's the little arc reactor in his chest. I would feel really uncomfortable if I had a nuclear device in my chest, by the way. If the armor of God is a little bit like that and there needs to be a power source for it, what could that possibly be? And I think the text tells us this in verse 15. If you want to turn there with me, I'd encourage you to do that. It's kind of a benign phrase, but I think it has a lot to do with this power source idea. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. What does that mean? Paul, I think, is saying... And he says this before, verses 11, 13, and 14. Stand firm, stand, be strong, take the strength of God. How do we do that? We do that by tapping into the passion that God has placed in each of our hearts. The passion that God gives is how I would define whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Let me explain what I mean by that. What makes you ready to proclaim something? What makes you ready to talk when you have to talk at work, when you have to talk at school, when you have to talk to your kids. Oftentimes, what makes us ready to talk is something that we're already passionate about talking about. So just as an example, one of the things I love about this church is we've got a lot of people who are working in some really cool parts of the marketplace. A lot of people uh, work in technology, which is not a field that I know anything about. And so I love to ask people questions like, oh, tell me about the work you do. Tell me about the programs you write. What kind of things are you building? And I listen for this, you guys, and I hear it, and I'm so proud of y'all for doing this. You bring the passion for your work, and I hear it when you start talking about something that gets, ex- gets you excited in your work, something that you're really fired up about, a new product, a new device that you're working on, something that you're doing on your team that you're super excited about. I've talked with lawyers who are really excited about representing people on the margins and helping them get the kind of legal representation that they are entitled to. I'll talk to social workers about their passion for helping address the problem of gun violence in very personal and practical ways. I'll hear doctors tell me about their patients and how they just love this family and they love seeing this group of people and they've seen this healing happen. And yes, it's true. Engineers, you do show emotion when you talk about things that you're passionate about. Your passion is the thing that you start talking about and you just keep going. For me... My passion in my work is often related to ideas. I tend to be somewhat philosophical, and I really like discussing whatever the bigger narrative is, whatever the idea behind the idea is. 
when I was a pastor in Colorado, I was uh, serving with um, some teenagers, kind of teaching them, walking them through a confirmation class <clears throat> where they could articulate their faith. And I loved doing this. And I was talking with one of the students, and uh, he kind of in an offhanded comment said, oh yeah, well that's karma. And I said, really, do you believe in karma? And he said, no, it's just a word that my friends use, and I've kind of heard them say that. And so through that conversation, I was able to kind of say to him, like, well, tell me about what you think that means, and let's talk about what the background for that is. And it was really fun for me because this is where my passion starts to come out. I get really excited and animated when I talk about the ideas like karma, which is not biblical, which is not holed up in a gospel framework. It only works for entitled Western individuals. It just doesn't. Our version of karma is not the original version of karma, and it doesn't play in a Christian universe. I'm not going to beat up that kid and tell him that right off the cuff, right? So I'm going to kind of try to walk him into that a little bit and talk him through it. And it was really great because it was a place where my passion could kind of come to play for him and help him understand, like, look, I don't think this works. It's fine that, you know, you're sort of picking up on this language, but what's the idea that you're representing here, and do you really believe it? I love this stuff. That's why I love reading Dallas Willard. That's why we're doing the book club starting on Tuesday. I'd love for you to be a part of that. Part of my calling is to communicate and preach and teach and lead in such a way that people who do believe in karma can come and feel welcome to have a conversation about that and that we can kind of point toward the truth of the gospel within that, that we do not get what we deserve, that we do not have a cause and effect relationship with our God, that we have a relationship of grace and we have a relationship where we are given everything we do not deserve. And that is so contrary to all the other systems of religion in the world. I'm called to lead in such a way where this idea behind the idea can kind of open up and the gospel can enter in. And the power source for me in that is my passion for talking about ideas. And I'd love to talk to you guys about your ideas someday. God is calling the people of Ephesus to step into their passions. So what is your passion? What is the thing that gets you fired up, that gets you talking, whether it's in your work, whether it's in your parenting or in your school? How can you better tap into that? If you can't think of your passion right now, there's your homework assignment. You get to go home and think about what is, what is a driving passion for you in your work or in your relationship with your neighbors. If you love gardening and you cannot stop talking about gardening, there is a way that God wants you to use gardening to reach other people for Christ. It can happen, you guys. If you are passionate about prayer and you just love to pray and you just want to pray all the time, talk to Josh about being on our prayer team. We need you. If you love kids, if you love helping kids grow in their faith and reach maturity in Christ, then you need to talk to Kristen about how you can become a part of our children's ministry team. That's passion. That's kind of the power source for the armor of God. And this is the way not just to defeat the schemes of the devil and kind of you know, keep him at bay, but it's a way to find our pathway through that into the thing that God really wants us to be doing with our lives. So the church has a mission and a vision. Along the way to securing those goals is the challenge of spiritual battles. Our way through that is to employ our passions, to call upon the full armor of God, to know the word of God, and to step into the reality that God has for us. And now we need to talk about the thing that kind of holds it all together, the key weapon in our arsenal, and that's prayer. This is where we'll go back to verses 18 through 20. Pray in the Spirit at all times, Paul writes, in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. A couple of ideas to think about here related to prayer. 
Verse 18, Paul writes, pray at all times in every prayer and supplication. This is kind of fun. All he's doing is using various words for prayer to say the same thing over and over again. So he's saying pray, and then when you're done praying, pray, and then after that, pray, and then pray a little bit more. This is a real challenge for those of us who might say, you know, I'm not very good at prayer. I get distracted. I forget to pray for people. I'll say to somebody, oh, I'll pray for you. And then I just feel guilty when I stop being able to remember that. Be encouraged that prayer is not the same as perfection. No one is ever called to be perfect in prayer. We're called to persevere, but we are not called to be perfect. That's what this later phrase says. Keep alert and always persevere in prayer. Jesus uses the same phrase, the same word, keep alert, when he's talking to his disciples at the end of Luke's gospel. He's telling them, there's things coming down the pike. I'm about to leave you guys. And your calling is to keep faithful in prayer. Persevere in prayer. Don't worry about being perfect in prayer. Just pray. He's telling the disciples, prayer will be your best tool for the things that are yet to come. So what does that look like in my life? Uh, When I get anxious, I try to stop and pray about the thing that's causing me anxiety. Whether it's something work-related or kid-related, I just try to stop what I'm doing and pray in that moment. Uh, The image I have in my head is if, you know, you're trying to hold like an inflatable ball underwater and the ball keeps popping up, prayer is kind of my way to sort of hold that down for just a little bit. The ball still pops up, (laughs) and it pops up again, and I pray again. And it pops up in a different way, randomly, and I'll pray again. The, the point I'm trying to make is, is it's not about praying and then forgetting about something. It's about when that thing comes up again and again, you pray for it. And you just ask God, you could ask the same words of God, but he will hear you and he will intervene and he will be active in addressing that concern. Maybe you've got something coming down the pike for you that you're really concerned about. You've got a big project at work this week. You just moved to the area and you're going, oh my gosh, like who could I hang out with? Netflix is killing me. I got to find somebody. I got to find some friends. When those fears pop up, the ball comes up under the water. Pray. Just ask God, God, help me find somebody today. Help me find someone I can connect with. Help me walk through this project in a way that will demonstrate your faithfulness. I've got a kid starting kindergarten this fall. He turns, my son turns six today and he starts kindergarten this fall and you think I got something to pray about. Oh yeah, I need to be praying for his teachers, his classmates. So what I've done is I have a little sheet and I'm kind of somewhat disciplined slash organized, maybe a little OCD about things like this. I have a little sheet hanging up in my kitchen that says each day of the week and each day of the week I've written down something I'm going to try to be faithful in praying for. So first day of the week is my son who turns six today and then my two daughters the next two days, and then my wife. And I try to remember to pray through that calendar each day. And then as things come up, I can kind of write them down, right? So my son's starting kindergarten. Okay, I'm going to pray for his teachers. I'm going to pray for the administrators at his school. I'm going to pray for his classmates. I'm going to pray for this. It can go somewhere, and then I can keep track of it. When I was in college, I had an empty box of Altoids, you know, the little mints, the metal box. And I would write down prayers on uh, Post-it notes, And I would stick them in the Altoids box. And before I would go to bed, I would open up the box of Altoids and I would just pull out one of my little post-it notes. And that would be the way that I would try to remember to pray for people. If you're not like me, God bless you. (laughs) I think most people are like me and that we just need help remembering who to pray for and how to pray. If any of those methods can help you, do it. And you're doing it in a way, I think, that honors God because the scriptures tell us to pray in all times in the Spirit. That means pray with focus. Pray on your knees. Pray in such a way that you're not trying to do something else while you pray. Pray without distractions. Is that hard? Yes. 
Is it life-giving? Absolutely. And I would just ask too, I'm going to echo one of Paul's prayers. He says this in verse 19. He asked the church to pray for boldness for him. That was a conviction for me this week, you guys. Because as a leader in the church, I could always use more boldness. I've been convicted lately that I can be neutral and kind of apathetic at times at even telling people what I do or inviting them to come to our church. I feel like when someone pushes back against me work-wise or family-wise or whatever that I kind of cave in pretty quickly. I grew up in a household that was kind of go along to get along. And that only serves you so well for so long. So pray for boldness for your pastor. Pray for boldness in how I lead. Pray for boldness in my marriage and with my children. Pray that I will grow in my leadership in a courageous way. And I would ask for that prayer, not just for myself, but for everybody who serves in leadership here. For our local advisory team, for our staff, for all of our key ministry leads that are doing the work of ministry right now. And if you want to be a part of that in a very uh, focused way, again, I invite you to talk to Josh. He's our prayer team guy. Pray that Josh would stay passionate about prayer. Pray that Bree would stay passionate about worship. And that Kristen gets to step into her passion for children and for families. This all goes back to verse 15. What are you passionate about? What is the thing that demands that you would speak of it? And how can you be employing that for the sake of the gospel? So here's the review. Paul is defining reality for the church. We have a mission. We have a vision. There are real dark forces at work led by a real enemy. And we need to be using both our passions and the practice of prayer to address those challenges. Pray for the full armor of God and keep praying. Because you never know what God is going to go do through your prayers. I served a church that uh, did a vacation Bible school. And this was a traditional vacation Bible school like many of us probably saw growing up. It was in the mornings. You could take your kids there, drop them off. They'd play and they'd learn some Bible stories and they'd have a snack and then they'd go home around lunchtime. And this church that I was serving started to notice that kids who were coming to VBS were devouring the snacks. Like they were running out of snacks almost every day. And this was in a kind of more impoverished sort of rural community. And the teachers and the leaders and the staff started to notice this, and they went, you know what? These kids are really hungry. Like, they're showing up, and they don't have much to eat. And it turned out that a lot of those kids, like many kids in our community, the main places that they were getting food every day was at school. They would get breakfast there, they'd get lunch there, they'd get an after-school snack, and in the summertime, they didn't have that. So they were showing up, and they were eating everything in sight at this VBS, And so this team of leaders, these mostly women who had a strong passion for food, for ministering to people at the table, for reaching kids who are far from God, they started to pray. And they asked God, I think it was for a year, about whether they should move the VBS to the evenings so they could feed kids dinner. So they could help kids have a real meal when they showed up, not just, you know, give them some snacks. And so they prayed and they asked God and they said, yes, we think this is what we should do. They went to leadership. Leadership said, yes, we can do it. So they would do simple meals for these kids so they could eat. And that was a way that they, they stepped into the work of justice, right? Treating people the way God thinks they deserve to be treated. And they stepped into a place of courage and boldness simply by asking for prayer, simply asking God, is this what you want us to be doing right now? And every one of us, if we were to ask God in prayer, is this what you want me doing? Is this, can you use my passion for food or for hospitality to serve hungry kids? Oh, God will answer that prayer. Oh, and he will answer it in ways that we could never have imagined. And a traditional church doing traditional VBS started to make an impact in a community by feeding hungry kids. 
What could God's dreams be for your passion, for the heart that you have, for the underserved, for the needy? If you have a passion for reconciliation and race and justice, then you need to be a part of what God is letting us do with Paradise Baptist Church. My hope and my prayer for us as a church is that we will increasingly be bold in how we pray and courageous in how we execute the vision that God gives to us, like feeding hungry kids. I want to invite you now to take a deep breath and join me as we pray and get ready to come to God's table. If you're serving communion, I want to invite you to come forward, and I'll invite the band to come up as well. As they come forward, please join me in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for your mighty work in us and among us. We thank you for the boldness that you've given us to live into. As Paul asked for boldness, we ask for boldness, God. But to get there, we need to be fed. We need to be nourished like those kids at VBS. And so we come now to your table where you are the host, where there is bread and juice. And we ask that even now you would be moving in us among us to nourish us spiritually through this time. The battles out there are real. The forces of darkness want to take people down who follow you and who love you. And so through these moments that we have at table, would you equip us through this meal to better serve you? We pray in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.